Hello, and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And to be honest, every single time that I say, either in this space or elsewhere, that I don't want to get terribly political on virtual legality or in this channel, well, somebody does something that asks me to get at least a little bit political. Now, if you aren't on social media or if you haven't been following the news over this past couple of hours, you may not have seen that President Trump in the United States put forth the following tweet. With universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote? Question mark, question mark, question mark. And the last sentence of this particular tweet has been picked up and analyzed to within an inch of its life only in the past couple of hours. Now, I want to talk about this because I think it's an important point. This particular episode of Virtual Legality is likely to be perceived by some as political. I don't really view it as terribly Republican or Democratic or anything else in terms of politics. It is anti-grabs at authority from executives of all manner and walks of life, governors, congresspeople, presidents, and the like. And it is a discussion of how when you want to say that something like this couldn't happen, that the law doesn't allow something like this to happen, you really should reflect on the stances and actions and words that you have taken in the past couple of months in order to defend whatever action you thought was appropriate at that moment in time. And I'm talking about governors, I'm talking about journalists and outlets in general that have espoused stretching the law, stretching the rules and regulations, whether that's through the takeover of things like General Motors and requiring them to make ventilators or backing up executives, taking arbitrary actions that maybe they do justifiably think is in the best interest of their people, but aren't actually being explained either to those people or to the court system. And that at the end of the day, that continuous systematic weakening of the rule of law, the concept of the rule of law gives us a situation where I can't sit here in this video and say to you, I am 100% positive that if the president decided that he was going to unilaterally delay this year's federal presidential election, that he couldn't at least justify it with what we have seen as the justifications for executive orders and at the Supreme Court level this year in 2020. So, to talk about this with more specificity, let's take a look at what has been reported on. Both CNN and the Associated Press in general have basically reported, as you can see in the thumbnail to this video, that the president has said these things in this tweet, but don't worry, he can't do it. CNN starts out by saying, President Donald Trump explicitly floated, delaying November's presidential election on Thursday, lending extraordinary voice to persistent concerns that he would seek to circumvent voting in a contest where he currently trails his opponent by double digits. Trump has no authority to delay an election, and the Constitution gives Congress the power to set the date for voting. Technically, the power to set the date for voting of the electors of the president in the Electoral College, but angels on the head of a pin. The AP follows up with a very similar headline and kind of approach. Trump floats November election delay, but he can't do that. And they say the dates of presidential elections, the Tuesday after the first Monday in November and every fourth year, it's government statutory writing for you, are enshrined in federal law and would require an act of Congress to change. 
The Constitution also makes no provisions for a delay to the January 20th, 2021 presidential inauguration. And that's the background. And you are seeing this all over the internet. Well, he said this, but he doesn't know what authority he has. He doesn't know what he's saying. And I think there's a couple of things happening here. I always want to give the benefit of the doubt. And even with a presidential tweet, and even with a president that tweets out certain things that are uh, wise to be circumspect about, if you are otherwise reading them on the fly, I don't know that this necessarily is a call for action or a suggestion that the president himself can unilaterally delay the election. I think if we wanted to give the president the benefit of the doubt, you could read this as any other presidential communication in which the president, the executive of the United States, espouses a course of action that he would like to see Congress take. You saw this in the Obama administration, in the Clinton administration, in the Bush administration. You basically go and you say, I think this is important. This is what should happen. And maybe those particular presidents are a little bit better at couching it as a request to Congress. But certainly when President Obama says something about gun control, it doesn't necessarily mean that he thinks he can do whatever it is that he just said unilaterally. Now, that's the benefit of the doubt approach. I think there is good reason to not necessarily give the benefit of the doubt in a context like this. So let's pretend that we can see into the president's mind and that we know for certain that he is meaning to float, that he might try to seize the levers of power and delay the election unilaterally. What protections do we have from that kind of activity? As the AP suggested, as CNN suggested, this is basically enshrined in law. We go to Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, the highest law of the land, and it says the Congress may determine the time of choosing the electors for the presidency and the day on which they shall give their votes, which day shall be the same throughout the United States. They get to set how the electors are voted on and when they will actually take their vote for president. In the Constitution, no ifs, ands, or buts. And Congress went forward and put together a law that said specifically when it would occur. The electors of president and vice president shall be appointed in each state on the Tuesday next after the first Monday in November in every fourth year succeeding every election of a president and vice president. That's the four-year election cycle that we know so well here in the United States. So Congress has the authority under the Constitution. They have exerted that authority under the Constitution. And more precisely, the 20th Amendment adopted to the Constitution sets forth exactly when the term of the current president and vice president shall end. The terms of the president and vice president shall end at noon on the 20th day of January, and the terms of their successors shall then begin. So even if President Trump wanted to delay the election and wanted to assert authority that he thinks he might have, specifically in this instance in 2020, which is what we're going to talk about for the remainder of this video, even if he did that, the U.S. Constitution at its highest level says your term ends on the 20th day of January, but only if the term of your successor were to begin. So let's say the president could delay the election and no successor were elected. What does this amendment actually do? This isn't the backstop that some are reading it as. And so we really need to identify whether or not the president of the United States, the executive branch, could unilaterally take a delay on what is already the law as enacted by Congress under their constitutional black letter authority. And the reason that's a question right now is not because it would be a question in any given year in the United States or the history of the Republic, but because it's a question of executive authority right now, right here with COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And if you've been living under a rock, you haven't seen many of these, but here in Michigan, we're now on executive order 161 since the start of the coronavirus outbreak, really in March when the executive orders really started flying. And you can see 
that the governors of the states, many at least, have been exerting their authority under what we traditionally call the police power, the power of the states acting either through their legislature or their executive branch, their governors, to protect the health and well-being of their populaces. And it's a little bit difficult, it's a little bit tricky, it's really law school classes to talk about where all of this originates from, but suffice it to say the U.S. Constitution is a document that gives powers to the federal government and reserves the powers not given to that federal government, either to the states or to the people. And that's the Ninth and Tenth Amendments of the Constitution. They aren't used a lot in the Supreme Court or at other court levels because they are so kind of ambiguous. They don't actually set forth black letter powers, but it is acknowledged, it is understood that the states have the power to basically protect the health of their people. And that is why these executive orders and everything else have been upheld, even in the face of really speaking against the direct constitutional wording of the United States Constitution. And in order to understand that, we only have to look at the First Amendment. This is probably an amendment that everybody is the most familiar with, but Congress shall make no law. You might say, Rick, we're not talking about Congress, we're talking about the states, but again, we're going to skip a few classes of constitutional law. Suffice it to say, the 14th Amendment has enacted these amendments themselves to operate on the state level. So just assume for purposes of constitutional law that this prohibits the states from doing whatever it is that this would otherwise prohibit the federal government from doing. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the exercise of religion, abridging the freedom of speech, or the right of the people to peaceably assemble. That is the rights put forth in the Constitution that govern all of what we know as it's a free country in the United States. You can go where you want. You can associate with who you want. You can assemble where you want. You can say what you want. You can worship what you want. And yet, here in 2020, we know darn well that that's not the case. We know that there are 161 executive orders that say, I can't be in a room with someone else if there are more than nine other people in that room. That I can't go to my place of business if I can otherwise work remotely, which I can, thankfully. I'm blessed in that fashion. But that all of these rules have been put upon many, many, many of the citizens of the United States in the various states in which they live because of the emergent problem of pandemic, of COVID-19, of trying to thwart this virus where it lay. And because of that, you have seen for the past few months all of these defenses of this executive power. And that really culminated in the past couple of months with a couple of Supreme Court decisions, which if you follow me on Twitter, you probably have seen me rail against. And some people have come out and said, well, you know, it's just because you are a conservative or you are a Christian or you want to see churches beat up on governors or whatever it might be. And that's because these particular cases are about churches. They are about religious worship. But that is not my focus on this. And in fact, I would try to stop guessing my politics if I were you in the comments to these videos, because hopefully you can't tell because these aren't political questions on a Republican Democrat scale. These are questions of whether or not an executive branch, really any branch of the government, can seize power and not explain to the people why it has anything to do with what they would purport to claim. And that's the reason I brought up this article from this morning here in Michigan, that the governor here is closing down bars, closing down restaurants, reducing everybody to only 10 people in a room except for the Detroit casinos, which pay the bills of the state of Michigan through those taxes and through people really loving to be there. They're opening up the casinos at the same time they're increasing restrictions or keeping the same level of restrictions across the state of Michigan, except for 
those casinos. So you get into this argument of arbitrariness. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court has decided they are uninterested in talking about what is arbitrary and what is not. At the end of May, we saw in a denial for an application for injunctive relief. So these churches in California came forth to the Supreme Court and said, please enjoin the state from enacting its executive orders because they are beating up on religious institutions in a manner that is different from the way that they are beating up on secular institutions. And that is illegal under that First Amendment. And the Supreme Court looked at this issue and denied injunctive relief. And in denying it, ultimately, Chief Justice Roberts said, hey, look, this is too hard of a question for the Supreme Court. And we aren't going to get into what is right and what is wrong. And these governors have a hard job. Or more specifically, he said as follows. The precise question of when restrictions on particular social activities should be lifted during the pandemic is a dynamic and fact-intensive matter subject to reasonable disagreement. Our Constitution principally entrusts the safety and the health of the people to the politically accountable officials of the states to guard and protect. When those officials undertake to act in areas fraught with medical and scientific uncertainties, their latitude must be especially broad, and where those broad limits are not exceeded, they should not be subject to second-guessing by an unelected federal judiciary which lacks the background, competence, and expertise to assess public health and is not accountable to the people. Chief Justice Roberts said this because he said churches are different from these other buildings that are doing something else and you can't really enact the safety in the right way, but we're not going to second-guess anything the governors say, whether or not they defend it or not, whether or not it is a blanket difference, abridging, prohibiting the free exercise of religion, let alone the right of the people to peaceably assemble. We aren't going to look at it because this is a very difficult time in the United States. And that case was at least a close one. The case brought up there was Entities that were different, maybe social distancing guidelines weren't the same across these entities, but this was doubled down upon without Roberts even speaking only a couple of weeks ago in which, as Justice Gorsuch describes, the case was as follows. Under the governor's edict, a 10-screen multiplex may host 500 moviegoers at any time. A casino, too, may cater to hundreds at once with perhaps six people huddled at each craps table here and a similar number gathered around every roulette wheel there. Large numbers and close quarters are fine in such places, per that governor's edict, but churches, synagogues, and mosques are banned from admitting more than 50 worshipers, no matter how large the building, how distant the individuals, how many wear face masks, no matter the precautions at all. In Nevada, it seems it is better to be in entertainment than religion. Maybe that is nothing new. But the First Amendment prohibits such obvious discrimination against the exercise of religion. The world we inhabit today with a pandemic upon us poses unusual challenges. But there is no world in which the Constitution permits Nevada to favor Caesar's palace over Calvary Chapel. And this has been the direction of the law over the past couple of months, that the Supreme Court has abdicated any responsibility to adjudge a governor's actions, and in the most obvious bright line cases, 
right? You have here a state in Nevada that says 50 worshipers only in churches and then whatever, I believe it's 50% of your capacity in casinos, thousands of people. And that's just fine because we have determined that that matches whatever we believe our health edicts would warrant. Obviously, that isn't the case. You don't have to be overly cynical to realize that casinos make the government money and churches not so much. And so you've got Gorsuch, you've got various other parties signing on behalf of the people that would at least look at these governor's actions in respect of religious cases and say, we need to get at least a rational basis. They need to explain why this difference exists. You can't write that for them. And without that protection, without that backstop, the unfortunate fact of the matter is we don't have a Supreme Court. We don't have a state of the law that actually looks at this question and says there is anything the governors can't do. This was the bright line test. This is obviously prohibiting the free exercise of religion in a way that is not neutral across secular and religious businesses. So when we start to talk about things that are less bright line, that it is less obvious that the governor or maybe even the president is violating specific ordinances or rules or regulations, then we get into an even deeper problem with what is happening and what can be allowed. So when we get into something like Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, in which primarily the president is given this power, the executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. That is all our founding fathers chose to really write about the president outside of his powers as commander-in-chief. And so... Yes, we presume that that means that there is an overall authority just to execute the laws of the land, and that's basically what the president has been doing, but the president does a whole lot more on a regular basis. And maybe you think Robert's talking only specifically about the fact that politically accountable officials of the states are charged with guarding and protecting would help us, that the governors of the states are the only ones that are allowed to have this power, and truthfully, as a lawyer, as someone that has been to law school and has studied the Constitution, I think that is probably right, that the police power lives in the states and that the federal government has no such police power. At the same time, here in 2020, we are left with things like the governors of the states telling the president to enact things like a mask mandate. Here's Governor Whitmer again. In the New York Times, what if Trump made everyone wear masks? It would save many lives and save the economy too. To slow the rise and further protect our families from this virus, we need the Trump administration to issue a federal mask mandate. So any argument that might be had that would say, well, Chief Justice Roberts is only talking about the states here. He's only talking about the police powers is completely eviscerated just in terms of the rhetoric that is going out there. And I'm calling out Governor Whitmer because I'm most familiar with her writings. I'm here. I pay attention to what she's doing here in my state. But this is not unique to her. You have governors across the country saying the federal government should do more and not stating with any kind of appeal to authority where the federal government might find its constitutional rights or powers to do that thing. So when you take these steps, when you back up a Supreme Court that basically says the governors can do whatever they want, when you don't defend things that are pretty obviously violations of the First Amendment, when you say, okay, all of this is fine because they believe in the cause, because we don't have to sit here and say Governor Whitmer is lying. We can sit here and say Governor Whitmer might be the best person on earth. She might be an angel sent from above who truthfully believes everything that she says here. 
that every single executive order, all 161 of them, were made in the benefit of her people to try to save the most lives and to benefit not the government, but every individual that lives within her jurisdiction. And that she asks for, uh, for President Trump to enact a mask mandate because she believes that that will help save people regardless of the power or authority. You can believe all those things and still say, maybe she doesn't have the power to do what she's doing. And certainly the presidency shouldn't have the power to do what she's asking, but you don't care as long as it aligns with what you believe to be in the best interest of the people. Which brings us back to this tweet. In this same vein, under this logic, everything that has happened in the past two or three months has weakened the concept of the rule of law and exchanged it for the rule of man or rule of woman, depending on your particular jurisdiction, and changed it out based on the beliefs of those individual executives as to what is right or what is wrong, completely eschewing the process of the legislative enactment of rules, regulations, and laws. So when you get to a point where you've got a president who might be doing something dangerous and might be doing something that you disagree with, if he truthfully believed this, if he absolutely 100% believed that this would be a fraudulent election or spin it on its head, if he were to come out with a tweet later on today or tomorrow and say, you know what? I think it's just too dangerous to vote. I think it's not worth it to have the election in November because I think this virus could potentially prevent people from voting in a proper way. And that mail-in voting could spread the virus as well. Again, no proof. We're not really operating on proof bases when we're talking about executive orders and what the governors are doing themselves. So he just says, well, you know, the viral load could be spread on envelopes. We don't want people licking envelopes. What about sending them across the country, sending them into mailbags and postal carriers everywhere? And he goes out and he says that. And you look at the Supreme Court and what they have allowed in terms of violations of things like the First Amendment. You go out and you look at the fact that the governor wants the president to start using power that he doesn't otherwise have if he believed that it would save many lives. Then if the president were to reframe this as wanting to save lives, under what legal rubric would you have to fight against him? I sit out here in virtual legality, on Twitter, on my social media, fighting against rulings like this, basically decrying the Roberts court at every opportunity, not because I'm particularly in favor of any given action that is taken or not taken by Roberts or his cadre on the right or the left, depending on where he finds himself, but because his continued abdication of any kind of rule of law concept makes everything dangerous for tyrants at the governor level and also ones at the presidential level. So I don't truthfully believe that the president means much by this. I don't. But if he were, where would we be left? And so I leave you with a scene of one of my favorite movies of all time. If you follow me on Twitter, you might see me retweet this particular scene from time to time because I think it is so important. If you aren't familiar with it, this is from a movie in the 60s called A Man for All Seasons in which Thomas More is defending himself from, I believe it's Henry VIII. Uh, and in one of the scenes in this movie, before all this happens, but this is more dramatic, so I use this shot, he gets asked essentially why he won't arrest somebody. He's being implored to arrest somebody. He says, why? What has he done? The person imploring him says, he's bad. He says, there's no law against that. There is, there's God's law. He says that God can arrest him. And then while you talk, he's gone. You'll miss your chance. And go he should if he was the devil in himself until he broke the law. 
So now you'd give the devil the benefit of the law. And yes, what would you do? Cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? I'd cut down every law in England to do that. And what is his final response? Oh, and when the last law was down and the devil turned round on you, where would you hide the laws all being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow then? Yes, I give the devil benefit of the law for my own safety's sake. Now, what that particular conversation is talking about is a different kind of weakening of using the law in a way to prosecute rather than in using the law in a way to essentially abdicate from prosecution. But we have the same kind of concept. If you work for months and potentially years on end to weaken the concept of the words on the page, that the statute means anything like what it says that it means, that the First Amendment is worth the scrap of paper that it is printed on, that you can't act arbitrarily to do whatever it is you like, whether for monetary reasons or not, that you shouldn't just espouse the exertion of powers that frankly don't exist because you like them. That if you don't do those things, you will be protected by the law. And if you do do those things, then no protection will be afforded to you. And look out for when the devil turns round on you. This has been Virtual Legality for today. A little bit more of a serious episode than usual. But if you like talking about business and law in general, especially through the pop culture framework of video games, movies, music, and things that you're otherwise reading on the news or in general, please do come back, like, subscribe, tell people that we are here, that we are having these conversations. I promise not to do too many references to A Man for All Seasons, but not promise to not have any more references to A Man for All Seasons in the future in virtual legality. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.